The trade-off here is if you're more inclusive, more people can represent and support climate policy, which is something we definitely need, you know? But we also need to move quickly. And it's really hard to find consensus among different groups and move quickly at the same time. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, we take a look at the first six months of the Biden administration. The administration came in with some ambitious plans and targets for its climate and energy policies. And to help us make sense of what's happened so far, I am pleased to welcome back to the show Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners and Sarah Ladislaw, now with RMI. And they are also both non-resident associates with the energy program here at CSIS. With my colleague Nico Safos, they take a look at how the Biden administration has approached a government-wide climate policy, its plans for broad-based emissions reductions, they look at development of climate-leaning industrial policy, and how the administration is incorporating environmental justice into its policies. They also end by taking a look at what the administration has gotten right or wrong so far, and what is next on the agenda. I'll turn it over to Nikos now. Well, Sarah, Kevin, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We thought we would get together to talk about, so we're about six months into the new administration, and try to take stock of what has transpired so far during this administration. So maybe let's start with an open-ended question. Sarah, let me maybe turn to you. You know, what do you make of the Biden administration on energy and climate? What are the things that you've learned? What are the things that have surprised you that have gone really well or really poorly? Maybe just start there. Well, thanks so much for having me back. It's really nice to be on the podcast again. Uh, And yeah, I can't believe we've gotten this far already. In some ways, it seems like it's been a lot longer. And sometimes it seems like a really short period of time. From on a high level basis, I think the Biden administration has been enormously ambitious in what they have sought to accomplish during the first year, the first six months of this administration. I usually, what I usually say to folks, you know, particularly who, you know, don't think about climate policy from administration to administration is the Biden administration came in where the Obama administration ended. So if you look at the things they did with the first hundred days, the things that it took the Obama administration sort of eight years to figure out about how to mobilize an all of government approach, this group came in knowing at the outset, right? And so they just worked to put all of those things in place almost immediately or as fast as they could. And so I think that that, given everything else that the administration had to tackle in addition to the energy and climate plans is pretty remarkable and that they've been by and large moving forward with a number of their big ticket items, the most important of which being the sort of domestic infrastructure package, the legislative agenda, which could be a really significant down payment on what needs to happen in order to mobilize a more quick uh, sort of transition to a clean energy economy. They've also done a couple of other things that which I think will be important to talk about, you know, which is trying to engage at rapid speed the international community and to build back, you know, over, you know, what they lost over the last four years in sort of lack of U.S. genuine engagement in a very active multilateral process. 
I think that there's just been a huge number of challenges in addition to what one could sort of normally foresee as challenges with such an aggressive energy and climate agenda, which is, you know, to say there's a lot in the multilateral system in moving the climate agenda forward. That's really tricky right now. Part of it is the diplomatic overhang from just how countries are not getting along or how developed countries have not really delivered on sort of vaccine issues or sort of development assistance for developing economies in the climate context and out of outside of it. So I think a lot of those things have been really challenging to be able to to square in the multilateral sense. And then the stuff domestically, I think, was more expected, but also has proven pretty, pretty tricky to navigate this far. Kevin, your take? Well, I certainly agree with Sarah's point about how quickly they've gotten into it. I think the way we framed it, Sarah, you and I, maybe a while back, I think I said something like the, the Biden administration has 18 months to shape three decades. And the idea was that there's a certain amount of time to get legislation passed and rules moving before the midterm elections run up. And if you look at where they are, you know, the notable absence of a carbon price or any effort in that direction aside, there's really four pokers in the fire. Standards, which are underway, a very ambitious day one agenda full of rules to revisit and those standards undergirded by a social cost of carbon to make them tighter when that social cost of carbon goes up. Incentives, uh, they're working on it with the infrastructure package or packages or no packages as the case may be. And then there's a couple of things that I think have gone less appreciated that in many ways have been more significant. The, uh, the superpowers the White House has include things like export finance, where there's still a great deal of ambiguity about where they stand on LNG, for example, but also uh, the ability to convene states and work across states to unify and, and conform policies to open and close federal lands, opening them to wind and solar well, pausing, hanging out, I think, uh, maybe for some time yet to come on leasing for, for oil and gas. And then the, the fourth poker in the fire is the indirect financialization of, of climate risk, which is really, it's moved in, in part through the independent agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission through independent actors like the Fed, but moving faster in some ways, I think, than, than many people might have expected. And as Sarah mentioned very rightly, with an international dimension, which is surprisingly successful, even as some of the other international dimensions are still very much question marks. One of the areas where I think it, it maybe didn't go as smoothly as the administration might have hoped was the, the idea that you could compartmentalize with China and retake the mantle of climate leadership from Europe, all without so much as a ripple. You know, whatever optimistic take there might have been in that, you know, the number of times you say we're back or America is back, there's still other people on the other side of, of both oceans who will say, yeah, we're still here. And uh, that, is, uh, that is probably one of the headwinds that I think we'll probably talk more about in the coming minutes in, in, of this segment. But, you know, really those four parallel channels are, the way they're trying to accelerate a, a really aggressive transition. We, we maybe sort of cast aside the nationally determined contribution for the Paris Agreement, don't say, hey, look at this, we all believe in this. I mean, I suppose it's aspirational in its nature because the last one seems to have been, but it's, it implies like a five-fold increase in the rate of reduction of emissions. And so you've got to move a lot of stuff in parallel if you have any hope of trying to get there. And it's clear that they're trying. Well, thank you for, for that, because I think what you both outlined is very much 
the specific issues that I wanted to get into more deeply. So let's maybe start where Kevin just finished on the nationally determined contribution. So that 50 to 52% reduction in emissions, obviously very ambitious. You know, Sarah, maybe start with you. Like, how are you judging the administration's efforts just purely on the reduction of emissions front? What do you see coming out that, that makes sense? What do you expect to come out that hasn't really come out yet? How are you grading those efforts purely on the front of reducing emissions? So I think the NDC is positive in a couple of different ways. One, it sets an aggressive timetable for 50 to 52%, you know, emissions reduction. And it importantly sort of, you know, moves the timetable forward from what is often and sometimes too often a conversation about net zero by 2050. There's a lot of ways to get to net zero by 2050 and the various pathways can lead to different uh, outcomes in terms of, you know, what, what kind of emissions threshold you're willing to cross to eventually get there. And I think it's really hard to emphasize through processes like the nationally determined contribution process, like what needs to happen today versus what needs to happen, you know, like several years down the line. And so I think that the the idea that the U.S. is going to, you know, as Kevin said, use all of the levers that it has from an executive branch side of the equation to be able to reach those targets. We saw a really sort of aggressive, you know, regulatory agenda, like list of items put together. You saw a hugely ambitious list of budget items for all of the different agencies to be able to pursue in terms of, you know, you know, procurement of clean and using all the levers that they have in all the different agencies to be able to ensure that they're trying to reduce emissions as quickly as possible. I do think, though, that there's a lot of need to make sure that some of the legislative provisions that they're putting forward will be able to add credibility to the U.S. decarbonization story. I think that, you know, executive action alone combined with state policy action is just really hard to be able to make those targets by themselves without seeing anything over and above that. This is where I think, you know, ITC and PTC provisions, you know, are important in the legislative dialogue, particularly if they are more flexible than the ones that we've seen in the past. Clean energy standard, but a clean energy payment plan mechanism uh, would also be like the types of signals that I think we really need to see to be able to tip the balance of near term investment in the US energy system to drop emissions. So those are the types of things that I think, you know, if you were going to sequence this administration's actions, <clears throat> the near-term stuff is really focused on, you know, near-term investment through the legislative agenda. And then the longer-term items will be more on the regulatory front. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And I, I mean, I think once you start framing everything around the ambition of the NDC, everything you, you do just needs to be much bolder, right? Because like, it just doesn't get you there, uh, even big things that you can do just doesn't really get you anywhere near that 50 to 52 percent reduction. Kevin? I mean, Nikos, let's be blunt. If you put every American currently driving a light-duty vehicle on a bicycle, you wouldn't get there. That is more than eliminating light-duty transportation emissions in the space of 10 years. It's going to be very difficult to hit. Nothing, I would say, impossible. But when we talk about the, the scope of what that entails, the emissions reduction from the power grid and the transitioning away from fossil resources in the absence of, of you know, the next generation technologies that one could anticipate for out years, 
it could even be very difficult to get very simpatico players to get the job done with their own constituents. And so I think it is an organizing principle, though. And if the administration is to be understood at what they're trying to do, they're not interested really in talking about even 10 years. They're trying to talk about 30, right? They're really talking about the 2050 target in a believable sort of accountable first window of opportunity. And that changes the debate. And so the idea of having a climate summit where everybody talked about 2030 instead of 2050 or 2060 was a way to bring it into focus as something that, that actually had immediacy and political relevance. But there's a danger in that. And the danger in that comes in the context of our politics, where if it starts to look like it's really happening at the same time that for whatever reason, and an often unrelated reason, prices are rising, then the context where this green agenda could get rolled out, which was record low share of disposable income for gasoline, goes away and you have a, a yellow vest problem in the way of your green agenda. And uh, so in, on the one hand, acceleration and the way they're doing it is extremely bold. On the other hand, they better keep the stimulus coming so the wallets stay fat enough that Americans don't start to feel a little bit lean when they look at high pump prices. So I just to add to that, I mean, I think Kevin's right the, the yeah, it's really hard to do what they're proposing to do. And I think that there's a lot of concern over what the impact of those policies would be on popular support. Two things that I think that the administration has rightly focused on, which is, can there be near term evidence that investment in clean energy infrastructure is beneficial for communities in some way, shape or form, either by creating new innovative industries or creating new jobs or just creating new investment? And I think that that is one of the things that you've seen them spend the most time focusing on. And this is why that sort of near term investment and infusion of investment into different communities is like, you know, the thing that they want to be, you know, focusing on the most. I will say, I'm sort of curious on a on a, a sort of academic level, whether this yellow vest thing matters quite as much now, because we're in yellow vest land. People are not happy. U.S. politics is not sanguine in any way, shape or form. So what is the manifestation of that pushback that would lead people who you know want to invest in communities for clean energy or push people who have claimed that they want to do something to invest in clean energy or meet these targets sooner or faster like what would the pushback look like you know and i think the obvious answer is maybe like inside the the sort of midterm election cycle or something like that but you know, what would that pushback really look like that would make the, the sort of trajectory of these policies, which by and large, I'm not sure will necessarily have a negative economic impact over and above what we might see from inflation and the general recovery, like overall, like I'm not sure that those policies bite over the near term in the same way, rather than this sort of general optics issue over the economy as a whole. So I'm sort of curious where the yellow vest piece comes in. As we're as we're asking Kevin that to justify himself, let me just put a finer point on what where Sarah just ended, which is I don't see any costs in being imposed on anyone. Right. In fact, you could say that's actually one of the drawbacks of the Biden plan. Right. I mean, we talk about industrial decarbonization. There's no cost or penalty for anyone. You look about transportation, it's all incentives. There's no gasoline tax. There's no sort of trying to mandate behavior in any in any serious way. So I'm kind of just to, to build on what Sarah was just asking. You know, I mean, you could say that the Yellow Vest movement is just the general movement of, you know, 
just people not being very happy about the world. And that's true. And, you know, gasoline price could go up because of stuff happening in the world. And so that could get manifested, but it won't be in any way really connected to the agenda. It might be perceived or claimed politically to be connected to the agenda, but not in a real way. Look, the, the point you made last Nikos is exactly where I was going which is that I, I would agree with you that particularly when the government is giving money, I even said this, when the government is adding to disposable income with incentives, the, the price pressure isn't real and it, there's never been a better time to do this. But the perception is the problem. The problem is that your, your green agenda can be derailed by the politics of perception. And if we look at other things that can get in the way of the green agenda, there are recent vintage examples, Sarah, to give an example of what, what backlash looks like. Republicans argued that the administration was turning its back on human rights violations in Xinjiang because it wanted to advance a green agenda. I'm not sure that's true. That may not have been true. It may have been a number of reasons why customs and border protection hadn't yet moved on solar panels, but the allegation looked bad. It was a campaign slogan that, that wrote itself. And if you look at the, the politics we have in this country, Riling up Republicans from red states isn't that hard. Uh, you probably haven't noticed that. And getting the, the unconvinced to believe something without necessarily having the firmest of factual bases also isn't hard. And so when you have things that are circumstantial and coincident, like a, a pause on federal permitting on, on lands that actually the pause was only 30 or 40 days for permitting, it wasn't even complete, but at the same time that the gasoline prices started to rise, now you're talking about a leasing cessation or limitation, which probably wouldn't bite for years, doesn't matter. The fact of talking about it coincident with something else can render a program vulnerable to political backlash. And that's really what I'm talking about. It is the politics and the perception that matters. Bringing home that this program is valuable to communities, as Sarah said, is vital to ensuring long-term long -term support when in fact there are real perturbations getting in the way. But before you can ever get to the point where that value comes home, you have to get past the more immediate perceptions and the, the maybe less tangible risks. Can I build on that? Because I think one of the, and Sarah alluded to this, I mean, one of the efforts that this administration's engaged in is to try to show the benefits of this investment. And it's particularly tried to do that through its articulation of sort of a manufacturing strategy, a strategy about reshoring and sort of supply chain security. We saw the, you know, 100-day supply chain review. And I'm wondering, maybe starting with you, Sarah, you know, what do you make of these efforts? I mean, I know we in the past together have done a lot of work on, you know, domestic manufacturing and industrial strategies. And so I'm wondering, sort of seeing that in practice in the first, you know, six months or so, you know, what, what do you make of these efforts? Yeah, it's great. And and I think, you know, for the listeners, some of the follow-up uh, pieces, commentaries that you've done, Nikos, on the topic are also really, really good, which which sort of take the next step, which is to try and think about what it actually means to implement these industrial strategies, you know, by sector or technology in particular parts of the country. I mean, I, I have of, of two minds. One, I think it's precisely the right thing to do, right? So looking at supply chain vulnerability or value of supply chains uh, from the perspective that they are of resilience, of national security, of competitiveness value is right along the lines of, quite frankly, which I, what I think is a common theme, you know, a bipartisan theme, if you will, <laughs> between both administrations, which is to try and think more deeply about how our economy 
is dependent upon other economies for provision of goods and services across the board. And so I think that they were very good sort of first steps in review and thinking about where U.S. equities lie, whether they're economic resilience equities or national security equities or, or sort of competitiveness equities. I think acting on them is harder, right? I think putting the policies in place and getting the U.S. sort of, you know, governance apparatus to think about management of your economy in a deliberate way is something that Americans don't do very often. In fact, I was testifying on the topic and was told as much uh, from a senator that they didn't like to manage the economy. And yet, when you start talking about, you know, wanting to invest money in R&D, wanting to make sure that the jobs happen at home, and so you're talking about manufacturing in the U.S., and then you're talking about border adjustments, and then you're, this is, this is what we're talking about, right? It would just be helpful for us to think, you know, deliberately about a strategy. What's been interesting to me is I think the administration if not Congress, though I think Congress is doing it in its own way, is starting to think about what place-based strategies look like, right? And thinking not fundamentally about decarbonization of energy systems and least cost, you know, pathways to that, which has valuable, is valuable, but thinking about what it looks like to try and create demonstration projects or manufacturing hubs or innovation centers in different communities around the country and what it actually takes to get that done. And that's a very different type of uh, enterprise that looks more like economic development than it does energy and climate policy. And you're starting to see people act like that. You're also starting to see the and you've seen it in a number of the bilateral discussions that the administration held in the lead up to the leader summit and subsequently thereafter which is starting to think about what it looks like to coordinate clean energy deployment strategies and your relationship with different countries in those strategies and so it is all sort of trending in in that direction but again we're out of practice in doing this particularly in the energy sector yeah i think the Industrial strategy without the muscle memory of industrial strategy. It's uh, and and while trying to pretend like you're not doing industrial strategy, I think that's probably the hardest task. Kevin, well, as an analyst, it's gratifying to have your predictions start to come true, but also a little horrifying if you don't necessarily think they're all good things for the economy. You know, for years we've anticipated what we call a convergence towards command capitalism. Sarah, you and I talked about this a couple of years ago, and the idea of taking a, a more dirigisme focused stance on your economy is is catching it's contagious and it's here border adjustments and the limitations on trade that come with protecting that investment that too long-standing refrain you've heard from me but here it's it's here we're in that point but it's not necessarily clear that all of the consequences have been addressed nor nor have all the strategies been crystallized and the united states is, is only converging towards command capitalism we're really not that good at it we're more diffuse in our capitalists and they don't all agree on things, and they're not as, as vulnerable to state control as others in other countries. And so when we have this grand contest that's been framed by the Biden administration between autocracy and democracy to see which can get things done, you know, autocrats are doers in a lot of ways, and especially when it comes to industrial policies. It didn't take much for China to start to turn around its thinking when its leader and the the Chinese Communist Party changed uh, their thinking. I mean, Xi Jinping sort of set a new direction in China, quickly followed. That's not how things are yet going 
In the US, although there's been a lot of corporate uptake, it hasn't been uniform, lockstep, or coordinated. And when you get down to the people who are concerned about extractive industry today, they're not necessarily as excited about extractive industry tomorrow looking a little bit like extractive industry today. It's hard to get new energy minerals mined, just like it's hard to get old energy resources drilled. And some of these challenges are going to be difficult and, and consume us. It doesn't mean they're not resolvable. Nearshoring is a solution, as you guys have very aptly pointed out. And there, there's a lot of ways out of this, but we're going to need a lot of stuff and a lot of people to stay focused for all of this to work. And we're maybe not going to pull it off as, as smoothly or as cleanly if we, uh, if, as you say, we lack the muscle memory. The big laws of the Cold War, uh, some of which were invoked by Trump and are still being used by Biden, were designed to sort of give this economy the muscle it needed to do those kinds of things. But there were levee en masse, full societal warfare context kind of things. And I'm not sure everybody in America thinks this is that context. Thank you for that. Let me do one more round on domestic policy and then I'll turn to international. Sarah, from you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the you think the administration is doing on environmental justice, which is obviously a huge priority. And Kevin, from you, you you, you called it the financialization of risk, but more broadly, the, the effort to sort of channel capital around the economy. Uh, how would you grade that effort? Maybe Sarah, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think that the, you know, the administration has made the environmental justice communities and environmental justice considerations priority. And I think a lot of us say that, but it still takes a minute to internalize what that actually means. So, I mean, I, I do think a lot of us are very good at sort of paying lip service to those values and or communities, but it means something very different to give, you know, people who represent frontline communities and, and folks who think about the you know uneven impacts of climate change or the sort of consumption of you know energy resources or some of our industrial processes a seat at the table and what's been really interesting to see is that the administration you know through its you know task force on environmental justice and, and the several kind of reports and things that they've put out so far isn't really just sort of thinking about this in terms of you know yeah we want to you know put 40 percent of what we're investing into these communities, but really thinking about, do we even know how to measure like what the impacts are and what counts as investment? And do we know who these communities are and what are the you know variety of things that they're, you know, they're concerned about and how do we measure progress against those? And how do we make sure that they're, you know, those priorities and those voices are included and embedded and indeed empowered by the types of policies and processes that we're putting forward. And so I think that what they're simultaneously realizing is it's you know it's hard to share a table it's hard to empower new communities in and you know it's not just the environmental justice community it's also labor unions not all of these groups agree with each other on the same things right but so i do think what's happening is that as we all know and, and as you know we know from the sort of just transitions work that we do you guys do at the center for strategic international studies it is hard to be inclusive about decision making processes on something as complex as climate, but I think what is helpful about it is, is actually it better represents, you know, a broader set of people who care about this issue. And yes, they care about it a little bit differently and their priorities might be a little bit different, right? They might not feel just quite as sanguine about, you know, nuclear or CCUS or heavy industry 
whether it's clean or not, you know, being in and around their communities. But I do think that there, the, the evidence so far is that the administration is putting in the work to make sure that they understand, you know, where, where the priorities of this community are and that they're not sort of just paying lip service to those concerns. The key question is in a democracy, in an inclusive, you know, party like the Democratic Party and the Biden administration is trying to be around this climate issue. The, the trade off here is if you're more inclusive, more people can represent and support climate policy, which is something we definitely need, you know, but we also need to move quickly. And it's really hard to find consensus among different groups and move quickly at the same time. And so I think that's going to be a big challenge. What I do think has been helpful is the there are lots and lots of evidence of places where it makes economic, environmental justice, and climate sense to do certain things and make certain investments. And there's actually quite a bit of overlap where that is, it's not a contentious issue. And I, we do tend to focus on where the issues are contentious, but I think that there's actually a lot of room to make investments quickly, particularly in the building sector that, and even in the transport sector, to be honest with you, that that there'll be a lot of opportunity to move you know, investment more quickly because of this coalition and the focus on environmental justice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kevin, can I give your thoughts on finance? Sure, I, I will try to keep it brief so we can get to the international, but um, it actually sort of bridges that. So the person of Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, former Fed Chair, is extremely important to this effort. Not only is the Treasury Department you know, going to very likely, if the infrastructure bills carry forward, have a pretty significant role in, in prosecuting the, the incentives that the administration has envisioned that will help to, to generate new investment interest in renewables and green and clean resources. But the financial services, the Financial Stability Oversight Council that Yellen chairs allows her to essentially coordinate different parties, or at least allow communication between different financial regulators in thinking about climate risk and how they, they gauge their different transactional purviews. And so it's really simple. The, the, the cost of money changes the way investors behave. And if the perception of climate risk becomes part of how debt and equity investors think about their investments, they're probably going to think differently. So the, the first step in many ways is the notion of a mandatory disclosure regime. And it is, it is not only complex, it is also politically fraught because mandating disclosure on terms that parties think are unfair yardsticks can produce results that will almost certainly work, but not necessarily get buy-in from all the industries that are regulated. What's the worst thing you could do? You, you move things to the sort of the darker part of the financial space. They stop being public companies. They stop being U.S. companies. None of these things uh, necessarily serve the prudential goal or the transparency goal that's involved. But disclosure actually could be very, very potent. I think many people overestimate the degree to which financial investors are looking at terminal values in the distant horizon, where there's a very significant climate risk. And to some degree, some of those climate risks are being visited upon securities inside and outside of the energy sector right now in ways that are not necessarily being valued by investors that might consider it in a more immediate horizon. So when you start to look at the other places this can show up, the financial flows will change, not just because of incentives or disclosure, but also because of things like stress tests on banks for climate. Now, this, you know, this probably emanates from the Fed independently or quasi-independently 
from the rest of this process. But the thinking in lockstep is still meaningful. The idea that you have to have risk reserves for certain types of assets when lending, the, the idea that when you're giving insurance or writing insurance contracts, there needs to be a consideration for heightened climate risk. All these introduce frictional deterrence to fossil investment. And in some cases can variously create new sort of accelerants to green investment. And these are the kinds of things the administration has been from the very first brisk and moving on. And I think still very much under the radar. It doesn't take very much. We're talking about a couple basis points here, a couple basis points there, fractions of a, of a percent and flows do change. So this effort is underway. You know, it's got a, an 18 month tail for some of the rules, but already some of the changes are, are happening. Uh, and coordinating this through an international process that conforms with sort of the, the TCFD's findings in their 2017 report, the IFRS Foundation uh, is, is working on international standards. The G7's recognized it, the G20's recognized it. It's almost certainly going to be a feature of the Council of Parties uh, in Glasgow. These things are non-trivial because if capital flight is your concern, if your concern is that the, the problem is that the disclosure regime chases capital somewhere else, and coordinated efforts between international parties, again, through the person of Secretary Yellen, who's been charged by the International Finance Climate Executive Order, President Biden put out, to do exactly this, can help to cordon off some of that capital flight. So I, again, I, I think that the administration has, has really done uh, far, far more than is appreciated in this regard. Thank you. And that's a great segue to just the last question I wanted to talk about was on the international front. I mean, we had the leaders summit, we've had sort of energy and climate show up in G7. We obviously have, you know, COP coming up later in the year. Just, you know, Sarah, you alluded to this as sort of trying to reconstruct some of the governance that had sort of atrophied over the last few years, but maybe some general thoughts on, on how you grade the administration on its international and diplomacy on, on energy and climate. Yeah, I think the I think so far the administration has hit the ground running, right? There's a flurry of international activity. And in some ways, the flurry can be the concern, right? So I, I do think that there's a lot of energy and activity multilaterally leading up to the COP to make sure that the global community has moved beyond making pledges and promises and is showing action. And this is not new, right? This has been a theme in multilateral dialogues on climate for a while now. But I think what's really tricky is if you follow the narrative that, you know, Kevin was talking about, which is you know, moving from 2050 to 2030 and getting everybody to move to 2030, but then from 2030 to realizing that if this is a decisive decade, you're now a year and a half into it and you need to figure out, you know, what you're going to do in the in the next couple of years. There's a lot of pressure in the system and, and pressure for the COP or the major economies forum or the UN General Assembly to be able to deliver things that look tangible and are immediate and change industry and make investments happen. And just as Kevin said, I think finance is just a enormous portion of that story, right? If, if there could be some definitive signs that, you know, the trillions of dollars that have been promised in vague terms are going to move in concrete terms, I think it could be pretty transformational. 
So I think that there's, it is a very active set of dialogues. I think that industrial emissions, something in my new job, RMI, through the Mission Possible Partnership that we're spending a huge amount of time focusing on is going to be ascendant in this context, which is, you know, recognizing that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about how to get the you know, industrial emissions sectors moving much more quickly if we're going to be able to meet any of the sort of climate relevant targets for, for those sectors. And so there's just a lot of activity, both in the private sector, among the climate champions, in the UN process formally, in governments bilaterally, in the clean energy ministerial and the mission innovation platform. There's just a lot. And I think the art of what you know, climate diplomats are spending their time focusing on is making sure the sum of the parts is substantial. And and this is tough, right? This is not where climate diplomacy has been in, over the last 30 years. This is about delivery and that's a different bar. And I, so I think it, it's a lot of, there's a lot of effort going on, but there are hard benchmarks to reach. Kevin? Well, so to that point, I mean, this is where the debate has evolved. The climate diplomacy process up until now has been one of trying to engender inclusion. You know, the orderly world that the diplomats envisioned in the Kyoto Protocol, the top-down global federalist system, which sounded pretty good, sort of a global fiat currency in, in metric tons of CO2. Everybody follows the rules, everything works. That, uh, that did not bear out. And then there's been sort of this uncomfortable transition to recognizing that economic sovereignty of nations requires acknowledging that they're probably going to have to call their own shots and figuring out how you navigate that world. And so, you know, initially sort of the bottom upping of the process that led to the Paris Agreement came without any sort of recourse. But always looming in the background was this unstable reality, which is that the emissions trading system in the European Union began in 2005, and they've been bearing a cost that their counterparts haven't been bearing. And at some point, somebody somewhere was probably gonna say, hey, wait, why do we keep doing this? And uh, this was that year. I mean, it, it was well telegraphed, Ursula von der Leyen made it very clear when she was campaigning for, for the uh, European Commission presidency, she intended to do this. And you know, French President Emmanuel Macron made it obvious that this was something he was agitating for as far back as 2017. So the, the, the roots of this in Europe go back to 05, the recent wave of sort of border adjustment enthusiasm goes back to 2017. But to have it wash across the Atlantic so fast to show up in Congress in 2021 is a bit of a surprise and probably speaks to where we are sort of, again, as, as Sarah mentioned, in, in, the, in the muscling around of our economies and, and the use of tremendous fiscal stimulus as a tool to do so, uh, to try to bring about industrial change. You have to protect those investments. But this is gonna get very, very complicated because if inclusiveness brings people to the table, then the idea of punishment drives them away. The idea that there's a, a global system that is supposed to, to be the uniting force on which climate diplomacy is built and that these measures could run afoul of that system means that the very evangelists in the West who are calling for greater ambition run the risk of undermining their own arguments by undermining the, the global trade infrastructure on which essentially the, the globalization that makes, makes climate diplomacy possible is built. So uh, it could get rickety. Now, who wins and who loses? Well, you, know, you could argue that the, the big money wins and that the G7 and the Western economies 
have the market, they have the cash, they have the means. And so if you want to do business in the world where they run the world, better do business their way. Or you could argue that the big emitters run the show. And if you can't convince them, you're really not changing anything. So maybe they've got the power. Well, look, I guess if this is the pivotal decade, there's eight and a half years left before we find out. But the COP is going to include this argument. It's going to be about whether or not there's recourse for failing to meet your targets. And uh, it, it runs the risk of, of setting up a new degree of seriousness about the, the way nations comport with the promises they make on the world stage. But it also runs the risk of, of creating new divisions that could undermine the, the, the kind of unity necessary to, pursue, to, to produce the desired result. Well, Kevin, uh, Sarah, always, always a delight to speak to you. Clearly, there's a lot more to talk about, but I think you've given us a great uh, a great sense of, of how you see the first sort of six months of this administration. And I'm sure we'll have you back to take stock once again. Thank you. Thanks to Sarah, Kevin, and Nikos for their insights today. We'll keep watching the administration's progress on its climate agenda. And you can find more of our analysis at csis.org backslash energy. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 at csis.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. As always, thanks for listening.